Amen. You may be seated, and if, uh, well, you have Bibles, and if you don't, there's one under your seat. Turn to John 17, and we're going to talk about being on a mission with Jesus today. That's what OAM stands for, and we have one slide today, sorry. All the slide makers were on vacation, so, but you'll take good notes. You got room to take notes in there, and the Word of God will speak well to us as well, and we're starting in uh, John 17, like I said, and by the way, my name's Jim Gain. I am, they call me executive pastor, but I've been for the last two years gratefully able to serve with the students, uh, which is supposed to be a three to four month little stint, which uh, has turned in, like I said, to two years. Uh, uh, I, which is both possibly good and bad because in college I prayed God, let me either be raptured or die in the youth ministry. So something might be coming. Uh, watch out for me. Keep an eye on me. Who knows what's going to happen? And I just want to say, man, I, I feel like this church has always supported the students really, really well. Um, and not so much treating us like the little redheaded stepchild over in the corner, but really kind of embrace the students like you're excited when they show up for things like men's breakfast and when they're in church and, and you're, you like hearing about what they're doing. And, and I hear about, we're praying for you and how can we be involved, et cetera, et cetera. We had our car wash yesterday and you people uh, support that so unbelievably well. Um, it's amazing. And so thank you from, from me and the students. And we're, we're just real glad to be a part of this church and can't wait to go to Hume Lake and come back and tell you all about it. And uh, I heard from Joshua yesterday. My two oldest sons are working up there this summer as uh, lead counselors. And uh, it was the first week, so I'm sure it was a little bit sketchy in places, but they said it's going to be amazing when we get up there. So uh, we're really looking forward to that. Pastor Bruce, by the way, is on vacation. Somebody asked me, is everything okay with him? What are you doing here? Um, <laughs> and... Uh, He's, he's doing great, and he, he's on a family reunion with uh, his father-in-law, Cecil Maxey, and uh, all family members from all over the country coming in there, so they're going to have a great time. That'll be fun to hear some stories out of him, as it always is, and man, haven't you just enjoyed how he's preached on weekends, the story? I mean, he's just doing an amazing... I, I don't, I, personally, I, uh, I was real intimidated for him. He was telling me he doesn't, he, before we started that, he was wondering how he was going to pull it off. And I don't know why he doubted it all, but I thought he did great. And I really enjoyed hearing about everybody that we heard about and getting a glimpse into the overview of why and how God was working through the Old Testament and hearing stories about Joseph and David and Esther and Daniel and Elijah. And really, man, the biggest eye opener for me was how I always had this impression that the Old Testament was about God and Israel, and that was it. And that every, every other people group was incidental, but that's not it at all. Israel was God's mouthpiece to the nations. It was about drawing nations into knowing about and experiencing God. And that, that just really impressed me how God was preparing them and using them to do that. In the church age, we call it the new covenant. The covenant or testament means promise. We have the old promise and the new promise. It's an improved new is, is kind of what it means. And um, at the heart of the new covenant is discipleship. 
At the end of his ministry, of course, we know the Great Commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. And so there's the nations again, but there's the methodology changed. It was law, it was national, now it's grace and it's personal. And we're supposed to be, as disciples, going out making disciples. And we've been emphasizing discipleship here over the last several months. And one of the things that we see that we've picked out is from Matthew 4.19 when Jesus is calling his original disciples and he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in that verse, we can see the definition of what a disciple is. A disciple is following Jesus, follow me, and I will make you, he's being changed by or transformed by Jesus Christ from one thing into another. And then fishers of men, we are on a mission with Jesus. Together, that's, all three of those elements are what a disciple is. Go into the world and make disciples. Go into the world and make people who are following me, who have aligned themselves with me, who are being changed into my image, and who are reaching people with the gospel. And near the end of his life, Jesus offers this prayer over the disciples and ultimately over us too, which I think you will clearly see in here, about what it means to be on mission with him. So you should be in John 17, and we're going to start in verse 13 with this prayer, which is about halfway through it. Jesus prayed for us, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And Jesus' prayer for us is that we would go into the world, be on mission with him out there to share the love of God so that the world would know. And I believe that this calling is a huge responsibility. And I, I have a quote here from a book called The Call by Oz Guinness, which I just think is a fabulous book. It's one of the only books I've read uh, back to back, second time. Finished it read it again. I enjoyed it that much and impacted my life so much. Just a really great book that I highly recommend you read. And in that book, he says this about the call of Jesus Christ, whether it's from Matthew 28 or here in John 17. He says, answering the call by its very nature is stepping forward to responsibility. Our calling is our responsibility, but we are not responsible to our calling. We are responsible to God, and our call is where we exercise that responsibility. And here's what I think. I think when you hear John 17 or the encouragement from Oz Guinness or other verses in the Bible that talk about being on mission with Jesus Christ, 
I think most Christians, and I believe most people at Crosspoint, really want to do that. They want to answer that call. They want to partner with Jesus. They want to, they want to be sent out. They want to share the gospel. They want to see friends and family come to Christ, but our minds get cluttered. They get confused, and we wonder about our knowledge. Do we have enough or our skill? Are we well enough informed, trained, or whatever? We wonder about being able to convince somebody into the kingdom. And so what comes up in our minds are these common arguments. And I know this because they're common arguments in my experience. I hear them from other people, but I know that I have them as well. And, and I just think it, it's, it's a very human response to do big things and be intimidated by it, to be invited to do big things and be intimidated by it. And so I wanna to talk to you today about three common arguments and believe that at least one of these, if not all three of them, will have been your experience at some time, just like they've been mine. And I believe that the answers that come from the Bible will help us fight through those and get on a mission with Jesus Christ. And the first argument is this, I'm ignorant. The word means unknowing. In other words, I don't know enough. I'm not trained. I don't know the Romans road by heart. I don't know the four spiritual laws by heart. I don't know the two ways to live tracked by heart. For a second, can you think of anybody in the Bible that comes to mind who shared their faith without having been trained? They're in there. I have two of them. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. He was blind from birth, and when he was done healing him, he said, hey, go show yourself to the priests, and the priests weren't happy about it. In verse 24, they're talking to him, and they say, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, and he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I have this friend, a good buddy of mine, Fred Williams, and he gets in these negotiations about failed customer service. And I remember one time in the office, just distinctly, he had a part sent to him, it was the wrong part, he was overcharged, et cetera, et cetera, right? And on the phone, what he'll do is say this, all I know is, let's, I'll pick a out of business store, all I know is Montgomery Ward told me they were gonna send me part XYZ. And all I know is I got part ABC. And he accomplishes so much by just sticking with that. That's what the bland guy is doing here. All I know is, once I was blind, but now I see. He didn't have a Sunday school certificate. He didn't have a Bible college degree. All he did was share what he knows. What about the woman at the well in John 4? She apparently is a new convert. Jesus has talked to her and said, hey, do you know that the Messiah is here? Do you believe in him? In verse 27, we pick it up, and the disciples are coming on the scene, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Did she have a Sunday school certificate? Did she have a Bible college degree? Did she have a wall full of Awana ribbons? No. 
My friend's wife's a kindergarten teacher, and he was telling me about some of the conversations that the kids have where she teaches in Irvine, which is a fairly international, cosmopolitan kind of community, and the school apparently is very much so too. And the other day, I guess she overheard a, a little girl talking with another one and kind of comparing faiths. And the first girl said, there's one God, and he's dead. The second girl said, oh, no, 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 there's many gods, and they're all alive. To which the first girl retorted, no, there's one God, and he's dead. Now, the theology's a little thin at the end there, because we believe Jesus Christ is alive. However, there is one God. And in her six-year-old mind, she's doing exactly what she should be doing, is she's sharing what she knows. And Bruce and I were talking the other day, and just a very liberating thought came across our minds. And it was this. What you're learning is more important than what you know. And I feel like as Christian people, we feel like we cannot witness unless we have some perfect Roman outline memorized, ready to present. Now, I'm not suggesting you be negligent or ignorant, but I'm also suggesting that you don't need to have the perfect thing to answer. And we'll see more about that as we go here. But what you are learning is more important than what you know. And you know where you see a great example of that every single week is in preachers. We don't get up in the pulpit, think about what we're going to, after thinking about what we're going to say at like 8.30 in the morning, oh yeah, I know, I got it all down, it's perfect, no problem, here's this outline. No, there's a lot of work that goes in during the course of the week learning. It's so much important than what we know when we preach. On a different scale, but the same idea, as you share your faith with others, what you are learning is more important than what you know. And yeah, you might feel ignorant. I understand that. And the Bible speaks to that through the blind man and the Samaritan woman. Another common argument that comes across our thinking when we wonder about our ability to be on mission with Jesus Christ is number two, I'm powerless. We think there's nothing within me that qualifies or is capable of being on mission with Jesus. I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. I'm just a factory worker. I'm just a salesman. I'm just a secretary. I'm just a student. I'm just whatever it might be. Or you might think that the call is better served by professionals, by the trained people, by the pastors, by the people who have been at this for a long time. Or maybe you're thanking God on a, on a yearly basis for the fact that the Harvest Crusade's coming to town, at least that's going on. I'm not sure where we get the idea that power needs to come from us because the Bible is abundantly clear. That the power to see people come to Christ, the power for you to be able to share the gospel effectively does not come from you. It comes from God. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power is not in us. It's not in you. What about one, Acts 1.8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here's why I think we offer this argument, I'm powerless. Even though 
clearly we have no power. It's because we've been told at some point or we've been led to believe or we just believe in our own heart that it's our job to get somebody across the line of faith. That when we share, if we don't get people to pray a prayer of faith, receiving Jesus Christ into their lives, we are failures. And that's simply just not true. And Paul explains that really clearly in 1 Corinthians 3. The Corinthians in their immaturity are trying to assign credit for their faith to certain individuals, including Paul. And Paul says, hey, it's not about us. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. People are coming to faith not because of us, but because of the power of God. It's not our power, it's our faithfulness. And I don't mean to say this sarcastically because very often this phrase comes off as sarcastic and I don't mean it at all, but it's basically this, know your role. How important is it for you to know your role and do your job and let God do his? In volleyball on the offensive side of the net, the system requires that the setter takes the second hit. It's a law, it's a rule. There's exceptions to it, they're very rare, maybe two, 3% of the times. For good power volleyball to work, setter has second hit. That's the rule. When the setter has the second hit, the system works. You can maximize your, your offensive effectiveness when the setter has second hit. But every beginning team I've ever taught, whether it was in uh, junior high or early high school, there's that kid who's trying to be really responsible, who's trying to do the right thing. Their motives are pure, but they stand under the ball on the second hit and they mess everything up. And you have to do things like, if you stand under the second hit again, I'm going to make you do 10 push-ups. Or you have to tell your setter, if they're, especially in games, if they're in your way, push them out of the way. Not their job. Now, God's not pushing anybody out of the way. He's whispering, trust me. Trust me. You be faithful to deliver the message. I will be faithful to bring the fruit. Trust me. The truth of the matter is you are powerless. The power is not in you. But God has given you all the power you need to lovingly and patiently share the message of the gospel by the power of the word and the power of his spirit. So maybe you feel ignorant, maybe you feel powerless. The third argument we have is maybe the most common, the most human, the most regularly stated one is I'm scared. And I want you to know that I think that that is a very reasonable concern. And I think Jesus thinks so too. In Luke 12, he says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, has, who after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Why is that there? That's there because God anticipated the very real possibility, in fact, the likelihood that we would face fear. And he's encouraging us. He's teaching us. He's coaching us. 
Do not fear. You're important to me. We have students talk to us about whether or not they share their faith or what intimidates them about sharing their faith, and they have very real concerns about it. One of those is, is just how it can challenge friendships. You got somebody you've been friends with for a long time, and you start sharing your faith with them or invite them to church, and if they're a little bit resistant, it builds in some awkward, a little bit resistant, it builds awkwardness into the relationship. There's some fear there. We scare, we're afraid these days, the increasingly anti-Christ America that we live in, for sharing our faith in the job place, for even mentioning Christ in the school, any public arena. Fear might be reasonable, but, but that's the argument. Here's the promise. Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Peter 4, 4, verse 14, Peter said, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Man, it doesn't feel that way. It does not feel that way. But that's the truth. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. One of the verses I like to quote very often under all different kinds of circumstances is 2 Timothy 1.7. It says, For God has not given the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do you know what the context for that verse is? It's not whether or not you can give a speech in English class and be afraid or preach up here or the, the common everyday things that we go through. The context is sharing the gospel. If you look at 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 6, it says this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, because fear doesn't come from God, because he gives you power and love and self-control instead, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The context of do not fear in 2 Timothy 1 is sharing the gospel. Again, the Bible is anticipating the very real, the very human, the very reasonable emotion of fear in that situation, and it's contending for it with us through these verses of encouragement that draw us to faith in God, you're scared. What if you never fought through your fears? Would you have any friends? Would you have a job? I mean, you guys, you look like a very confident bunch. You probably all went into that first interview just beaming with confidence, no need for antiperspirant, no sweat on you, you're good. What if you never fought through your fears? Would you be able to drive in Southern California? Would you be married? Would you parent? Scariest thing ever. One of the hardest things ever. Raising kids, well, by faith. It's hard, scary, it's intimidating. Would you do it if it, you wouldn't? What if fear kept the person who brought you to Christ from sharing with you?
Fear is legitimate. It's real, but the answer is faith in God and his promises that invite us to be on a mission with him in spite of our ignorance, in spite of our powerlessness, and in spite of our fear. And we have three actions we can take that we see in 1 Peter 3.15. If you don't mind turning over there, you might want to underline or take some notes and just kind of think about what we're encouraged to do and how it fits these arguments and these answers. In 1 Peter 3.15, we read, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And the first thing we want to do is always be ready. Underline being prepared and make an arrow or some kind of note that goes down to for the hope that is in you. Preparation doesn't mean that you need to be just like me or just like Pastor Bruce or just like your Sunday school teacher or just like Billy Graham, Jack Van Impey, Greg Laurie or whoever you know that is a gifted communicator. It's for the hope that's in you. Always be prepared to give an explanation for the hope that's in you. How did Jesus change your life? Are you ready to share that? Can you narrow that down to 90 seconds? Just a quick little synopsis or 10 or 15 seconds. It's not the hope that lies in anybody else. It's the hope that's in you. How did Jesus change you? How did he deliver you? How did he rescue you from whatever you were rescued from? Be ready. I have a good friend church. We have lunch regularly and we hang out and just kind of disciple one another. And he has this response to a very everyday question in the world. How are you doing today? How are you? How's it going? How, how are you? Anybody get asked that today? His response in the public forum is better than I deserve. And the reason he says that, and he doesn't always get the, the question, but he wants to be asked, well, why is that? And then he'll respond. His response is typically something like, because the grace of God has forgiven my sins. He says it all the time, and it's hilarious to see the responses. Sometimes people go, well, uh, good for you, you know? <laughs> uh, but he's ready, and that's all it is. It's not an outline. It's not a presentation with video. It's simple. Our speaker at the men's breakfast said something that was so incredibly awesome about Jesus and how he gets his message to us and to others. And he said, you never see Jesus being anxious. I read a great book called Just a Layman Bragging on Jesus by a man by uh, Horace Willard. And it's basically his testimony as a general contractor about all the, all the co-workers, friends, and neighbors he was able to lead to Jesus Christ. And he has something similar to that. He would get in casual friendship, business relationships with people. And at a certain point early in the relationship, he would say to them, do you know why I'm in your life? And they very easily would respond, very naturally would respond, no, why? Or... Yeah, so we could do business together. And he would say, no, God put me in your life. You want to know why God put me in your life? Because he wants a relationship with you that is real and personal. 
And he put me here to share that with you. Simple. Next question would be, is that something you'd be interested in hearing about? Yes or no? And he could just move on if they said no and make himself available for the future. But he was always ready. Ready. We need to be ready. Number two, we need to be dependent. Remember where the promise of power comes from, and it's not you. At the end of the verse, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. You know, one of the things I like to do is win arguments. I'm really very competitive in every way, shape, or form, and I'm trying really hard to get over that, and I'm better than I used to be, but I still got a long way to go. And so when it comes to witnessing, man, I just want to argue somebody into the kingdom. (laughs) Got to get the win. When you have released the power over to God and the message that just is right there in the Bible, you can talk to people with kindness and respect and love and understand that it's not about you. It's not about your cleverness or your skill. It's about the message from the word where there's power and God using that message. You don't have to argue somebody in the kingdom. You want to let them be drawn in. You can't get someone across the line into faith any more than you can make oranges grow on your orange tree in the backyard. It's not your job. Be dependent. Just let God work through you. Let the message be the message. The Bible is, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The power is in there. Be dependent. And number three, be faithful. Circle, underline, note somehow the words always and anyone. Because that passage says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone. Always ready to anyone. Asking people, do you know why God put me in your life? Responding to how you're doing with better than I deserve. Always. Be faithful because you love people. You have family and friends that need Jesus Christ. God needs your faithfulness to be on mission to reach those people. He put you in their lives to be the mouthpiece of God on a relational basis, personally for the people around you that don't know him. He put you there. In the face of rejection or persecution, it's going to require faith. It's going to require a resolve to do what you know the Father has called you to do. And to be faithful to Jesus Christ who prayed here in John 17, I do not ask for these only, but also for all of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe. So that the whole wide world would believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to all of them. Jesus didn't hold back on you because you're not a pastor. He didn't hold back his power. You're not getting thimblefuls of power. You're getting all that there is. You have it all. 2 Peter 1.3 is one of my favorite verses. It says that he has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. Everything? 
I get in the way of that so much. And then he calls us onto this mission so that the world may believe. You are part of that. You are invited to that. He says it again. That they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He's praying that we would be on a mission with him. Can you hear it from him? Don't hear it from me. Can you hear it from Jesus? Be on mission with the privilege of being invited to that depth of significance and meaning. In spite of what you don't know. In spite of how powerless or afraid you might be. Can you hear Jesus saying, get on a mission with me so that the world may know? And will you join him? If you are willing to follow Jesus Christ and you are willing to be changed by Jesus Christ, you're two-thirds into the deal. Will you get on mission with Jesus Christ? In your home, will you not be intimidated by what it might mean to share the gospel with your family members and friends and neighbors? Will you commit to being on a mission with Jesus Christ? We like to imagine, I'm sure many of you have imagined with us, what it would mean if everybody in the congregation just brought one person to Jesus Christ in the next year. What that would mean is that next June we would have four services. And we don't glory in numbers outside of the fact that people matter to God and when they come to Jesus, they come to church. That's all we care about. And the more people we can get here, the more people on a mission with Jesus to reach more people for Christ. And that's what we want to do. And I'd invite you Christian people to join us. And then maybe you were invited today. I was invited to church here when I was 16 years old, way back in 1980, because a friend of mine felt prompted and didn't ignore the prompting to risk our friendship, to risk whatever, to invite me to church. Maybe God put somebody in your life so that you would understand and know that God wants a relationship with you that's real and personal. Do you know Jesus today? You're not here by mistake. And God wants to show you his love. He wants to forgive you. And he wants you with him forever in heaven. That's why there's Christian people in your life. And that might be why you're in church today. So I want to invite everybody to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just kind of reflect on what we've talked about a little bit. Christian person, disciple of Jesus Christ, where do you stand with Jesus when it comes to the call? I feel like our church's predominant energy is on mission with Jesus Christ. We pray for missions, we give to missions, we are encouraged when people get baptized, we celebrate people coming to Jesus Christ. 
But I think maybe some of you are in here are just like me and you have missed opportunities filing through your head about where you shoulda, woulda, coulda shared a message with somebody that you know and love because you felt ignorant, because you felt powerless, or because you felt fear. And I just invite you to ask God to bring that opportunity or those opportunities back to you and give you what you need to follow through and share. And if you don't know Jesus Christ today, our chief prayer in life and ministry here is that people would know the love and forgiveness of of Jesus Christ and have their lives changed and to have the assurance of a home in heaven with God. And if you don't know him today, there's a couple different responses that you can offer. I'll pray with you here in a second or for you here, but We'll have some people over at the cross to my right later in the service that would love to show you and more clearly what it means to follow God. Maybe that's a little intimidating for you and just like all the other fears I talked about, that might be something to fight through. I know I had to go through a barrier of fear to to respond to Christ and I'm so glad that I did. But if you just want to know more about Jesus, we'd invite you to put that indication on a connection card and let us know and a pastor will be in touch with you this week and show you what the Bible says about what it means to be born again, what it means to be saved, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's real and personal. So Jesus, we thank you for calling us into this mission. I'm standing here played some sports in my life and enjoyed a lot of different things like, let's say, basketball. Never been invited to play on an NBA team. If I was, it'd be just unbelievable. It'd be unbelievable. It seems so magnificent from earth. I know I, I don't qualify to be on a mission with you, but you invited me. None of us in here qualify, but you invited us. What a privilege, what an honor, thank you. And we get confused and we get intimidated, but Lord, empower our minds and our hearts, encourage us to do what you've called us to do. Then I remember sitting in the crowd here at church and again at summer camp, just really fighting in my brain about following Jesus Christ and wondering about my sinfulness and my worthiness to even belong to the family of God. And yet you, you helped me get through that and, and brought me in. And I thank you for that. And there's those in this crowd, you've put people in their lives to draw them to you. You brought them to church today for the very purpose of hearing that you love them and they can be forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ, not because of anything they did. We just pray that you would remove the hindrances of understanding what it means to be loved by God and draw those people to yourself. And we thank you for the opportunity to participate in good gospel ministry in this community, surrounding areas, and really around the world 
through prayers and service and also forgive from being able to give in the offering. And so we give today to, to participate in the call and to show our gratitude for the life that you've given us and pray your blessings on this offering and this time now in Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.